A brother minister once told me a story of a man who was known in a certain village as a simpleton and was always considered to be soft in the head. No one thought he could ever understand anything. But one day he came to hear the gospel preached. He had been a drunken fellow, having wit enough to be wicked, which is a very common kind of wit. The Lord was pleased to bless the word to his soul, so that he became a changed character. And what was the marvel of all was, his religion gave him a something which began to develop his latent faculties. He found he had a something to live for, and he began to try what he could do. In the first place, he wanted to read his Bible, that he might read his Savior's name. And after much hammering and spelling away, at last he was able to read a chapter. Then he was asked to pray at a prayer meeting. Here was an experience of his vocal powers. Five or six words made up his prayer, and down he sat, ashamed. But by continually praying in his own family at home, he came to pray like the rest of the brethren, and he went on till he became a preacher. And, singularly enough, he had a fluency, a depth of understanding, and a power of thought such as are seldom found among ministers who only occasionally occupy pulpits. Strange it was that grace should even tend to develop his natural powers, giving him an object, setting him devoutly and firmly upon it, and so bringing out all his resources that they were fully shown. Ah, ignorant ones, ye need not despair. He saved them, not for their sakes. There was nothing in them why they should be saved. He saved them, not for their wisdom's sake, but ignorant though they were, understanding not the meaning of his miracles, he saved them for his name's sake. Note again, they were a very ungrateful people, and yet he saved them. He delivered them times without number, and worked for them mighty miracles, but they still rebelled. A. That is like you, my hearer. You have had many deliverances from the borders of the grave. God has given you house and food day after day, and provided for you, and kept you to this hour. But how ungrateful you have been! As Isaiah said, The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But my people doth not know Israel, doth not consider. How many there are of this character, who have favors from God, the history of which they could not give in a year, but yet what have they ever done for him? They would not keep a horse that did not work for them, nor as much as a dog that would not notice them. But here is God, he has kept them day by day, and they have done a great deal against him, but they have done nothing for him. He has put the bread into their mouths, nurtured them, and sustained their strength, and they have spent their strength in defying him, in cursing his name and breaking his Sabbath. Nevertheless, he saved them. Some of this sort have been saved. I hope I have some here now who will be saved by conquering grace, made new men by the mighty power of God's Spirit. Nevertheless, he saved them. When there was nothing to recommend them but every reason why they should be cast away for their ingratitude, nevertheless he saved them. And note once more 
They were a provoking people. They provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Yes, how many people there are in this world that are a provoking people to God. If God were like man, who among us would be here today? If we are provoked once or twice, up goes the hand. With some men, their passion stirs at a very first offense. Others, who are somewhat more placid, will bear offense after offense, till at last they say, There is an end to everything, and I can bear that no longer. You must stay it, or else I must stay you. Yes, if God had that temper, where should we be? Well might he say, My thoughts are not as your thoughts. I am God. I change not, or else ye sons of Jacob had been consumed. They are a provoking people. Nevertheless, he saved them. Have you provoked him? Take heart, if you repent. God has promised to save you. And what is more, he may this morning give you repentance, and even give you remission of sins, for he saves provoking people for his name's sake. I hear one of my hearers say, Well, sir, that is encouraging sin with a vengeance. Is it indeed, sir? Why? Because you are talking to the very worst of men, and you are saying that they may yet be saved. Pray, sirs, when I spoke to the worst of men, did I speak to you or not? You say, no, I am one of the most respectable and best men. Well then, sir, I have no need to preach to you, for you think you do not need mercy. The whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. But these poor people, whom you say I am encouraging in sin, need to be spoken to. I will leave you. Good morning to you. You keep to your own gospel, and I wonder whether you will find your way to heaven by it. Nay, I do not wonder, I know you will not, unless you are brought as a poor sinner to take Christ at his word and be saved for his name's sake. But I say farewell to you, and I will keep on in my course. But why did you say I encourage men in sin? I encourage them to turn from it. I did not say he saved the provoking people and then let them still provoke him as they had done before. I did not say he saved the wicked people and then let them sin as they did before. But you know the meaning of the word saved. I explained it the other morning. The word saved does not mean merely taking men to heaven. It means more. It means saving them from their sin. It means giving them a new heart, new spirits, new lives. It means making them into new men. Is there anything licentious in saying that Christ takes the worst of men to make them into saints? If there be, I cannot see it. I only wish he would take the worst of this congregation and make them into the saints of the living God, and then there would be far less licentiousness. Sinner, I confront thee, not in thy sin, but in thy repentance. Sinner, the saints of heaven were once as bad as thou hast been. Art thou a drunken, a swearer, an unclean person? Such were some of them, but they have been washed but they have been sanctified. Is thy robe black? Ask them whether their robes were ever black. They will tell you, yes, we have washed our robes.
If they had not been black, they would not have wanted washing. We have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Then sinner, if they were black and were saved, why not thyself? Are not his mercies rich and free? Then say, my soul, why not for thee? Our Jesus died upon the tree. Then why, my soul, why not for thee? Take heart, penitents. God will have mercy on you. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake. 3. Now we come to the third point, the reason of salvation. He saved them for his name's sake. There is no other reason why God should save a man but for his name's sake. There is nothing in a sinner which can entitle him to salvation or recommend him to mercy. It must be God's own heart which must dictate the motive why men are to be saved. One person says, God will save me because I am so upright. Sir, he will do no such thing. Says another, God will save me because I am so talented. Sir, he will not. Your talent? Why, thou deriving, self-conceited idiot, thy talent has nothing compared with that of the angel, but once stood before the throne and sinned, and who now is cast into the bottomless pit forever. If he would save men for their talent, he would have saved Satan, for he had talents enough. As for thy morality and goodness, it is but filthy rags, and he will never save thee for aught thou doest. None of us would ever be saved if God expected anything of us. We must be saved purely and solely for reasons connected with himself and lying in his own bosom. Blessed be his name. He saves us for his name's sake. What does that mean? I think it means this. The name of God in his person, his attributes and his nature. For his name's sake, for his very attributes' sake, he saved men. And perhaps we may include this also. My name is in him, that is, in Christ. He saves us for the sake of Christ, who is the name of God. And what does that mean? I think it means this. He saved them first that he might manifest his nature. God was all love, and he wanted to manifest it. He did show it when he made the sun, the moon, and the stars, and scattered flowers o'er the green and laughing earth. He did show his love when he made the air balmy to the body and the sunshine cheering to the eye. He gives us warmth even in winter by the clothing and by the fuel which he has stored in the bowels of the earth. But he wanted to reveal himself still more. How can I show them that I love them with all my infinite heart? I will give my son to die to save the very worst of them, and so I will manifest my nature. And God has done it. He has manifested his power, his justice, his love, his faithfulness, and his truth. He has manifested his whole self on the great platform of salvation. It was, so to speak, the balcony on which God stepped to show himself to man, the balcony of salvation. Here it is, he manifests himself by saving men's souls. He did it again to vindicate his name. Some say God is cruel, 
they wickedly call him tyrant. Yes, says God, but I will save the worst of sinners and vindicate my name. I will blot out the stigma. I will remove the slur. They shall not be able to say that unless they be filthy liars, for I will be abundantly merciful. I will take away their stain, and they shall see that my great name is a name of love. And said he, Again, I will do this for my name's sake, that is, to make these people love my name. I know if I take the best of men and save them, they will love my name. But if I take the worst of men, oh, how they will love me. If I go and take some of the offscoring of the earth and make them my children, oh, how they will love me. Then they will cleave to my name. They will think it more sweet than music. It will be more precious to them than the spikenard of the eastern merchants. They will value it as gold. Yes, as much fine gold. The man who loves me best is the man who has most sins forgiven. He owes much, therefore he will love much. This is the reason why God often selects the worst of men to make them his. Saith an old writer, All the carvings of heaven were made out of knots. The temple of God, the king of heaven, is a cedar one. But the cedars were all knotty trees before he cut them down. He chose the worst that he might display his workmanship and his skill to make unto himself a name. As it is written, it shall be unto me for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now, dear hearers, of whatever class you are, here is something I have to offer well worthy of your consideration, namely, that if saved, we are saved for the sake of God, for his name's sake, and not for our own. Now this puts all men on a level with regard to salvation. Suppose that on coming into this garden, the rule had been that every one should have made mention of my name as the key of admittance. The law is that no man is to be admitted for his rank or title, but only by the use of a certain name. Up comes the Lord. He makes use of the name and comes in. Up comes the beggar, all in patches. He makes use of the name. The law says it is only the use of the name that will admit you. He makes use of it and he enters, for there is no distinction. So, my lady, if you come with all your morality, you must make use of his name. If you come, poor, filthy inhabitant of a cellar or a loft, and make use of his name, the doors will fly wide open, for there is salvation for everyone who makes mention of the name of Christ and for none other. This pulls down the pride of the moralist, abases the self-exaltation of the self-righteous, and puts us all as guilty sinners on an equal footing before God to receive mercy at his hands for his name's sake and for that reason alone. 4. I have detained you too long. Let me close by noticing the obstacles removed in the word nevertheless. I shall do that in somewhat of an interesting form by way of parable. Once on a time, Mercy sat upon her snow-white throne, surrounded by the troops of love. A sinner was brought before her, whom Mercy designed to save. The herald blew the trumpet, and after three blasts thereof, 
with a loud voice he said, O heaven and earth and hell, I summon you this day to come before the throne of mercy to tell why the sinner should not be saved. There stood the sinner trembling with fear. He knew that there were multitudes of opponents who would press into hall of mercy and with eyes full of wrath would say, He must not and he shall not escape. He must be lost. The trumpet was blown and mercy sat placidly on her throne until there stepped in one with a fiery countenance. His head was covered with light. He spoke in a voice like thunder and out of his eyes flashed lightning. Who art thou? said mercy. He replied, I am law, the law of God. And what hast thou to say? I have this to say. And he lifted up a stony tablet written on both sides. These ten commandments this wretch has broken. My demand is blood, for it is written, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Die he, or justice must. The wretch trembles, his knees knock together. The marrow of his bones melts within him, as if they were ice dissolved by fire, and he shakes with very fright. Already he thought he saw the thunderbolt launched at him. He saw the lightning penetrate into his soul. Hell yawned before him in imagination, and he thought himself cast away forever. But mercy smiled and said, Law, I will never answer thee. This wretch deserves to die. Justice demands that he should perish. I award thee thy claim. And oh, how the sinner trembles. But there is one yonder who has come with me today, my King, my Lord. His name is Jesus. He will tell you how the debt can be paid and the sinner can go free. Then Jesus spoke and he said, O mercy, I will do thy bidding. Take me, law, put me in a garden, make me sweat drops of blood, then nail me to a tree, scourge my back before you put me to death, hang me on the tree, let blood run from my hands and feet, let me descend into the grave. Let me pay all the sinner oweth. I will die in his stead. And the law went out and scourged the Savior, nailed him to the cross, and coming back with his face all bright with satisfaction, stood again at the throne of mercy. And mercy said, Law, what hast thou now to say? Nothing, said he, fair angel, nothing. What, not one of these commands against him? No, not one. Jesus, his substitute, has kept them all, has paid the penalty for his disobedience, and now, instead of his condemnation, I demand as a debt of justice that he be acquitted. Stand thou here, said Mercy, sit on my throne, and I and thou together will now send forth another summons. The trumpet ring again. Come hither, all ye who have aught to say against this sinner, why he should not be acquitted. And up comes another, one who often troubled the sinner, one who had a voice not so loud as that of the law, but still piercing and thrilling, a voice whose whispers were like the cutting of a dagger. Who art thou? says Mercy. I am conscience. This sinner must be punished. He has done so much against the law of God that he must be punished. I demand it, and I will give him no rest till he is punished. 
nor even then, for I will follow him even to the grave, and persecute him after death with pangs unutterable. Nay, said Mercy, hear me. And while he paused for a moment, she took a bunch of hyssop and sprinkled conscience with the blood, saying, Hear me, conscience, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now hast thou ought to say? No, said conscience, nothing. Covered in his unrighteousness from condemnation, he is free. Henceforth I will not grieve him. I will be a good conscience unto him through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The trumpet rang a third time, and growling from the innermost vaults, up there came a grim black fiend with hate in his eyes and hellish majesty on his brow. He is asked, Hast thou anything against that sinner? Yes, said he, I have. He has made a league with hell and a covenant with the grave, and here it is signed with his own hand. He asked God to destroy his soul in a drunken fit and vowed he would never turn to God. See, here is his covenant with hell. Let us look at it, said Mercy, and it was handed up whilst the grim fiend looked at the sinner and pierced him through with his black looks. Ah, but, said Mercy, this man had no right to sign the deed. A man must not sign away another's property. This man was bought and paid for long before. He is not his own. The covenant with death is disannulled, and the league with hell is rent in pieces. Go thy way, Satan. Nay, said he, howling again, I have something else to say. That man was always my friend. He listened ever to my insinuations. He scoffed at the gospel. He scorned the majesty of heaven. Is he to be pardoned whilst I repair to my hellish den forever to bear the penalty of guilt? Said Mercy, Avant, thou fiend, these things he did in the days of his unregeneracy, but this word nevertheless blots them out. Go thy way to thy hell. Take this for another lash upon thyself. A sinner shall be pardoned, but thou never treacherous fiend. And then Mercy, smilingly turning to the sinner, said, Sinner, the trumpet must be blown for the last time. Again it was blown, and no one answered. Then stood the sinner up, and Mercy said, Sinner, ask thyself the question. Ask thou of heaven, of earth, of hell, whether any can condemn thee. And the sinner stood up, and with a bold, loud voice said, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And he looked into hell, and Satan lay there, biting his iron bonds. And he looked on earth, and earth was silent. And in the majesty of faith, the sinner did even climb to heaven itself. And he said, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God? And the answer came, No. He justifieth. Christ? Sweetly it was whispered, No, he died. Then turning round, the sinner joyfully exclaimed, Who shall separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And the once condemned sinner came back to mercy. Prostrate at her feet he lay, and vowed henceforth to be hers forever, if she would keep him to the end. 
and make him what he would desire him to be. Then no longer did the trumpet ring, but angels rejoiced, and heaven was glad, for the sinner was saved. Thus you see, I have what is called dramatized the thing, but I don't care what it is called. It is a way of arresting the ear when nothing else will. Nevertheless, there is the obstruction taken away. Sinner, whatever be the nevertheless, it shall never the less abate the Savior's love. Not the less shall it ever make it, but it shall remain the same. Come guilty soul and flee away to Christ and heal thy wounds. This is the glorious gospel day wherein free grace abounds. Come to Jesus, sinner, come. On thy knee weep out a sorrowful confession. Look to his cross and see the substitute. Believe and live. Ye almost demons, ye that have gone furthest in sin. Now Jesus says, If you know your need of me, turn unto me, and I will have mercy upon you, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Chapter 7, page 56 Abundant Pardon He will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, verse 7 In our childhood we learn from Dr. Watts' catechism that Isaiah was the prophet who spoke more of Jesus Christ than all the rest. In the chapter before us, he has been declaring in the name of the Lord the coming in the character of the Redeemer, speaking of him thus, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. No sooner had he thus proclaimed the appearance of the Christ than he beheld whole nations of the heathen rushing to him, and inspired by that sight he began at once to address himself to the sinners around him and bade them fly to him too. And there is a natural connection between the physician and the sick, so is there between the Savior and the sinner. The prophet can hardly think of Christ as coming to be a leader and a witness and a commander without at once turning to the wicked and to the unrighteous and bidding them forsake their ways, enlist beneath their commander's banner and participate in the blessings which he brings. Jesus is a grand attraction for guilty men. Then draw near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Christ is always welcomed by those who know they want him. The self-righteous Pharisees and scribes murmur at him, but those who are humble and contrite because conscious of their guilt approach him, wishing, as it were, but a touch of the hem of his garment that they may be made whole. As the sun is attended by his planets who borrow all their light from him, so is the Lord Jesus waited on by crowds of sinners who find in him their hope, their all. As the thirsty hearts resort to the water brooks, so do needy souls hasten to Jesus, and it is according to the divine order that it should be so. Notice what the prophet has to say. He speaks to the unrighteous and to the wicked and invites them to immediate faith and repentance, for so I understand the passage to mean. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. 
Call ye upon him while he is near is an exhortation to prayer and faith. We cannot approach God in prayer without faith, for a prayer that has no faith in it must die on the road. To seek the Lord aright, we must believe that God is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I take the sixth verse, coupled with the third, to be a plain exhortation to faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and for this reason it is written, Incline your ear to come unto me, hear and your soul shall live. As for repentance, that is clear in the seventh verse. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thought. The whole passage reads like a paraphrase of the gospel message. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. It seems as if Isaiah were rather an evangelist than a prophet, as if he had lived before his time, and preached the gospel like an apostle who had seen the Lord. Like the morning star which shines upon the earth before the sun has risen, Isaiah rejoiced the hearts of believers with his clear radiance. The gladness of his soul in the thought of the coming messenger of the covenant, even Jesus Christ, kindled his spirit and the light shone forth from him. He was so glad within his heart that his tongue was loosed and straightway he addressed himself to those that sat in darkness in the valley of the shadow of death and bade them arise and quit the shades and go unto their God, for there was no reason for despair. There was mercy, great mercy, abounding mercy, to be had, and he bade them obtain it there and then. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. The motive which he urged upon men was the certainty of their finding pardon. This was the tempting bait with which this ancient fisher of souls endeavored to catch men. May the Holy Spirit aid me while I use the same to invite you to consider with me the abundant pardon which God bestows upon the guilty. Having discoursed upon that at length, we shall in the second place consider what fair inferences may be drawn from this encouraging truth. 1. First then, according to the text, God does abundantly pardon. We will turn that truth over and over and see it in many lights. The pardon of God may well be abundant, for it wells up from an infinite fountain. Mercy, which endureth forever, is the attribute from which that pardon springs. Pardon is the child of mercy, not of justice, and we may reckon that God will give abundant pardon because he delighteth in mercy. All the attributes of God are well balanced. Like himself, they are infinite, and no one of them entrenches upon or dims the luster of another. He is infinitely just, yet infinitely good, infinitely powerful, yet infinitely tender. We are quite sure that whenever an attribute of God comes into action, it will be sufficiently revealed to make its glory manifest. There could be no mercy exercised by God unless there was sin. Where all was blameless, mercy had no sphere. As soon as the angels fell, the Lord might have exercised mercy had he so pleased, 
but he did not choose to provide salvation for Satan and his rebellious horde, as if to teach us that it is not inevitable that God should forgive. He suffered the fallen angels to fall irretrievable and gave them up to everlasting fire as their due desert. Deceived by the old serpent, man also fell, and again there was space for mercy. Man was an inferior creature to the angels. Should he be allowed to perish, or should grace step in? In this case, mercy bowed the heavens and came down, and the Lord of all, as if to show that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and will have compassion on whom he will have compassion, though he had passed the angels by, took up the race of men, and determined that his pardon should be bestowed upon them. Now when he had resolved to let mercy come down to the front and be seen, which I again say could not have been if there had been no sin, it was not wonderful that he allowed the blessed attribute to come forth in all the fullness of its might. In the creation you see power in its majesty and wisdom in its grandeur. In providence you see goodness unbounded and faithfulness unlimited. In the gulf to which the Lord has condemned the wicked, you see justice in all its awful glory. And therefore, when he determined to let mercy come forth from her ivory palaces, it seemed but natural that he should give ample room and border enough. It was not according to his mind that from the unfathomable depths of his love there should trickle forth a stinted stream of mercy which might wash out a little sin and water a scanty patch of the desert of our nature. But he poured floods upon the dry ground. When our sin abounded, his grace did yet more abound. He opened the sliding gates of his mercy. He let down the flood of his infinite love from above and drowned the mountains of our sin in a deluge of grace so that we sang rightly just now, See here an endless ocean flows of never-failing grace. Behold a dying Savior's veins, the sacred flood increase. It rises high and drowns the hills, has neither shore nor bound. Now if we search to find our sins, our sins can ne'er be found. God is love, implies that love has a predominance in his character, not so as to mar other attributes, much less to destroy them, but as the consequence and blending of the whole. And therefore we may be sure that this most conspicuous of all the attributes, this summing up of them all, will find full range and distribute abundantly its peculiar gifts. But secondly, as the attribute from which the pardon comes is abundant, so we know of a truth that the objects to which this pardon has been extended are abundant too. Well, is it said, he will abundantly pardon, for God has already pardoned sinners more numerous than can be estimated by human arithmetic. From the first sinner down to the last that has ever fled for refuge to the hope set before him in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, what incalculable numbers have looked to him and have been lightened. Think, my brethren, of the myriads that have lived and died forgiven. 
Heaven is not scant of inhabitants. If you could now lift up your eyes, you should see that the old covenant promise has been part fulfilled. Thy seed shall be as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. The promised seed in covenant with God, of which covenant God spake to Abraham, is already as many as the stars in heaven, and as the sand upon the seashore innumerable. They have come from every land, yea, from the uttermost parts of the earth have they come. Of every hue has their skin been, and the remnant of diverse colors. Their language has been varied, and their condition also, but they have alike found grace in the sight of the Lord. Multitudes of the poor and needy, yes, of the outcasts have come, the women that ground at the mill, and the captives that fretted in the dungeon. God's wondrous eye of love has found out broken hearts by millions. He has abundantly pardoned them. Yes, and even on the face of the earth now, what a multitude there are whom God has pardoned. Blessed be his name. There may be as many as Latitudinarianisms imagines, but there are continually more than bigotry conceives. God has pardoned a great multitude of the sons of men, and he intends to pardon yet more, for the gospel will spread, and brighter days are coming, and the halcyon period is on the wing, when nations shall be converted at once, and like the flocks of doves that come to the dovecot souls, shall fly to Jesus for forgiveness when the whole earth shall be filled with his glory in the multitude of repentant and forgiven sinners of the golden age men shall see that God does abundantly pardon his pardon is in the third place abundant when we consider the abundance of the sins which the love of God blots out oh what a subject I have now before me here is a river of depth unfathomable and for breath a river which cannot be passed over. It is a river to swim in. I must concur myself and call it an ocean. Indeed, what shall I say of this sea of sin? Therein are creeping things innumerable, both small and great beasts. There is Leviathan, who doth mighty disport himself. There are fierce tempests and horrible storms, which well may sink the boat which tempts them. I am overwhelmed with the thought of the abundance of transgression. Sin, from thy fruitful womb, what marriage of ills proceed. What countless hosts of evils ate the fruit of sin. How many are the sins themselves? Sin of thought, rebellious thoughts, proud thoughts, blasphemous thoughts, atheistical thoughts, covetous thoughts, lustful thoughts, impatient thoughts, cruel thoughts, false thoughts, thoughts of ill memory, in dreams of an unholy future. What swarms are there? Moreover, the omission of thoughts, which should have been, such as thoughts of repentance, gratitude, reverence, faith, and the like, these are equally numerous. With the double list 
my role is written within and without with a hideous catalogue. As the gnats which swarm the air at eventide, so numerous are the transgressions of the mind. Then there are sins of word. I should have to repeat the list again. What words have vexed the pure and holy ear of God? Words against himself, against his son, against his law and gospel, against our neighbor, against everything that is good and true. Words proud and hectoring, words defiant and obstinate, words untruthful, words lascivious, words of vanity, and words of willful unbelief. O God, how many are our sinful words? The sins of the tongue, what man is there who is able to reckon them up? Then come the sins of deed, which in very truth are but the fruits which grow out of sins of thought. Can any man here estimate the number of his own sins from the first transgression of his childhood until gray old age or to his present period of life? Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Perhaps the sins we do not know are more numerous than the sins we are conscious of. Conscience may be properly enlightened and hence many a thing may not seem to be sinful, which really is so. But God's clear eye perceiveth everything that is obnoxious to his holy law, and all errors are written down against us until the whole is wiped away by an abundant pardon through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are as the countless horde of locusts which descend upon the fertile land and devour everything, leaving nothing for man but famine and despair. But as it was in Egypt, so it is in this day. The Lord commands the wind of mercy to blow every locust from off the face of the land, and as they all depart at once, our hearts rejoice and are glad. Our sins are countless as the drops of dew in these autumn mornings when every leaf is wet, for every tree is weeping tears of sorrow over the dying year. And yet, when the sun has risen, with a little of his heat, the moisture is gone, the dews are all exhaled. They are as if they had never been. So countless are our sins, and so complete is the removal of our transgressions when the infinite love of Jesus shines upon us, and God in his Son has reconciled us by his atoning blood. Innumerable sins are forgiven by one word from the life of divine love. In the fourth place, we can see the truth of this in the abundant sin of those sins which are pardoned. Just think of the abundant sinfulness of any one transgression, for every sin has a myriad of sins in its bowels. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email 
at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.